Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this time to gather together and to look at your word. We ask you to bless it. We ask you to guide and lead us as what you would want us to see as we look at the words in, the, in this prophecy. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 34. We're continuing God's judgment, and this particular one is going to be a judgment upon Edom. And Edom, in its location on the, to Israel, is to the south uh, east of, of Israel and to the southeast of the Dead Sea, which is, even to this day, a pretty dead, arid area. And we're going to read about the curse that God placed on them. And it pretty much is still true today that they are a dry, dead, dry, arid place that people go around that area. They don't go through it by choice. So, verse 1. Come near, you nations, to hear and hearken my, you, my people. Let the earth hear and all that is therein, the world and all the things that come forth of it. For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations, and his fury is on all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has delivered them to be to the slaughter. The slain shall be cast out, their stink shall come out of their carcasses, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. On all the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll, and all the hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls off from the vine, as the falling fig from the fig tree. For my sword shall be bathed in, in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Idomia, and upon her people of my curse to judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood and is made, for the fa uh, uh, is made fat with the fatness and with the blood of the lambs and goats and the fat of the kidneys of the rams. And the, the Lord has sacrificed in Bozrah and a great sa slaughter in the land of Indomia. So we're going to look at this. It starts out to me talking about the end, the end when everything is destroyed. And then he's going to come back to an actual place. Because he says, draw, uh, come near, or, 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 you know, you nations, and hear. And that is to hear and obey and to hearken, attend, attend to him. God is always peop calling people to hear with the idea of being obedient and to pay attention to him. And for us as Christians, that's what he's always calling us to do. Listen and obey, you know. Go out and do what you're told to do. And it becomes really easy for people to ignore God and say, well, you know, that was old times. He doesn't really expect this. It's not what he wants. And I'm getting to the place where I'm being more and more convinced that God is wanting us to stand for righteousness. He wants us to stand against this world. And it's going to make it very hard on us when we stand against this world. When we say what the world is doing, God calls sin. Not to judge people, but God calls it sin. And it's going to get us in trouble. But the world didn't like the original, the original apostles and disciples. And it's going to get to the place where he, the world does not like us. And it's going to cause problems for us. And we need to decide, are we going to stand? Or are we going to give up and be judged because of giving up? Many churches and denominations have given up. They've just decided we're just going to agree with the world. We're going to, and then what they're really saying is we're not going to really agree with the world, but we're just not going to fight. And then that's the step from there to just agreeing with the world. But it starts with this idea we're just going to live and let live. 
we're not going to call things sin. We're just, you know, if they're not followers of God, we're just going to let them go to hell, basically. And we're not going to call out their sin. And right now, in our country especially, we are in a big battle between righteousness and complete, all-out sin. And we are looking at a huge battle. And it's going to be really big. And Christians are going to pay the price very soon. Because if we say what God says about things, we're not going to be liked. With Jeremiah's biggest complaint was, God, you keep, every time I, you send me to speak to the king, he throws me in prison or a dungeon or, or beats me. I'm, I'm tired of talking to him. <laughs> I'm not, and he kept saying, I'm not going to talk to him. And it said it's God's word burned in his mouth, and he couldn't help but talk. When we've made a decision to follow and seek after God, his words will burn in our mouth. And we're not wanting to say it. They will burn and, and make us very uh, upset. And here we see this idea that God's calling the earth to hear. And he starts with the nations. Then he says, and, all the, and by the way, not just the nations, but anything else, that, <laughs> anything else that's alive. So he's actually calling on the earth itself. It says, for the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations and his fury upon all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has utterly destroyed them to the slaughter. And here I believe we're talking about the battle of Armageddon when Jesus returns because that's we've never had a place in time when God has judged all the all the armies at one time when Satan faces off with God the world is gathered up at his side and, and God will just you know have an interesting war he just speaks and they die <laughs> you know not, not a very big war <laughs> lots of people die but not a very big war uh, and this I think is what he's talking about at this point God's talking about that end battle, that last battle where Satan gathers the nations together and God just says, okay, it's over. You, you made your choice. You decided against me. Now you're, now you're dead. Now you're going to lose your life. And, you know, it's an amazing thing how patient God has been with this world. When we look around, it breaks my heart sometimes when I look around this world and see the sin, the level of sin in this world. And I sometimes wonder, God, how can you put up with it. I can't put up with what much of what I see. I can't even imagine how God in his total righteousness looks at it and says, doesn't just judge. Well, he sees Jesus as the only thing that blocks part of it, but he's not seeing Jesus in everything, but he has seen the sin paid for. Uh, he has seen sin paid for. And that's the only way he could do it, because the world deserves punishment, and he's going to judge. And this is going to be, and it says here in this part, they're slain shall be cast out, and their stink shall come out of their corpses. <laughs> in other words, they get to be bloated and, and, uh, and not, a very, not a very pretty sight when he talks about this. Uh, shall come out of their carcasses, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood or become worthless and washed, washed with blood. There will be so much blood that there will be a, a stench in the blood. And the idea when something is stained with, by blood, it is, number one, it stinks after a while. And it's hard to get blood out, and it, it causes a stain. And he's going to say there's so much blood out there that it will cause a stain upon the land. And God will then get rid of the heavens and the earth and start all, start all over. And this is really important. It says all the host of heaven shall be dissolved or melted or rotted away. Isaiah, uh, and Peter were told that, in a, that everything will be burnt. God said in Noah's day he sent a flood to kill everybody. And he said, never again will I flood the world. But he can burn it. 
but he's definitely going to burn it. And I really think when, they, when, he, when the picture of the burning that they see is just him letting go of all the atoms and literally everything exploding in a, in a universal atomic explosion. So we see this idea and he says, the heavens will be dissolved, the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll and their hosts shall fall down and the leaf, as a leaf falls on the vine as the falling of the fig tree. And this definitely has never happened. This much, <laughs> this much destruction of the world has not happened. And it is going to be at the end of the millennial kingdom. Because remember, we've got the rapture coming, where the church is taken away from this world. We have the seven years of tribulation where Satan gets to rule mostly on this world. He'll still have some restrictions in, in his, uh, on him. He can't just kill the whole world, otherwise he would. And he will have fairly free hand. It will be a disaster. Can you imagine what it will be like with no righteousness anywhere? And Satan just allowing whatever. I can't imagine myself what this world will be like. You know, people stealing and killing and, and everything else that they want to do with freedom and not, and not having to worry about anybody saying they're wrong. It would be a very good place not to be during that period of time. And we will be in heaven enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb, being prepared for coming back. The second coming of Jesus will you know, be when he comes with the bride behind him. He'll defeat Satan. He'll cast Satan and the demons into hell for a thousand years. And he will rule this world for a thousand years. During that period of time, we will reign at his side. This world will be not set to perfection, but it will be made more like it was originally supposed to be. People will live long lives. Diseases will be put back in, in, in check. Uh, the scriptures tell us that if somebody dies at 100, they they're be considered a child. Uh, so we're back to the times when people lived to be eight, nine, 10, you know, to, a, to the full, full length of the millennium. At that end of the millennium, Satan is released and he gathers up a lot of people that want to rebel against God. I have never, you know, it took me years to be able to understand why anybody would want to rebel against God after they lived in, in really good time. But most of it, I believe, I really do believe is because he is forcing them to be obedient. And when Satan comes along and says, you know, hey, we can, we can rebel against God and we can win. Apparently, apparently people in the millennium are still going to have short, short memories. And will they still have sin nature? They will still have sin nature in the, the ones who live. The ones who come through the tribulation period and haven't taken the mark of the beast will have their sin nature. We will not have our sin nature when we rule with him. We, we've made our decision and we are sealed. We are safe. And we are safe. We won't, we won't, make, we won't fall for the Satan's lies because we've made our decision. We have eternal life. But the world will be presented with this opportunity just as, just as Adam and Eve were. You know, has God really said and they was, you know, that he's going to be victorious and, and defeat us and he'll raise up an army and with one word from God they'll be wiped out and we'll go to the white throne judgment. This world will be, you know, Satan and, and all the evil demons and all those who have rejected Jesus Christ will be cast in the lake of fire. God will destroy the current heaven and earth and, and create a new heaven and earth. That's, that's our end times. If you've ever wondered, that's end times <laughs> real quick. There's a lot more to it, obviously, but that is the timeline for the end times. And here, I believe we're talking about that last battle that God just says, it's up. Now he's going to roll the heavens up. He's going to restart everything. And it says, my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Edomia 
and upon the people of my and upon the people of my curse to judgment. So now we're backing off from the end days, and he's actually talking about a particular place. Endumia is Edom. It's another word for Edom. And that's why I mentioned at the start, Edom is southeast of Israel. And we're going to look at this judgment, and, and Edom is still, what used to be Edom, is still one of the greatest wastelands in that area. It has not been renewed. It has, it's, it doesn't have an absolute nobody traveling on it, but nobody travels in it by choice. And the Arabs talk about it as being wasteland, literal, absolute wasteland. They can't find, they don't have the water or anything else that they can find at other places. God destroyed it just as he said, that it would be a wasteland for all generations. And we see over and over when God says something, he does it. And he's so full of all the prophecies that he makes these things happen. Uh, verse 6 says, The sword of the Lord shall be filled with blood. It shall be made fast with its fatness and the blood of the lambs and goats with the fat and the kidneys of the rams. For the Lord has sacrificed in Buzrah, the great sacrifice in the land of Edom. Buzrah, as far as we know, is a city in Edom. We don't know where it is. It's not, not known. And it says, God has offered this sacrifice. And it talks about the fat of the fatness, the blood of the lambs and the goats, and the fat of the kidneys. If you remember our studies in, in the uh, Pentateuch, what part of the sacrifice was given to God in most cases? They took the innards, they took the fats, the fat off the innards, and they offered those to God. So he's talking about sacrifices being made. And here he's talking about the sacrifices that he has made. So he is saying, I am killing all these people, and I'm considering it a sacrifice. And many times God seems in our estimation to be pretty brutal, but Edom has been asking for trouble from the very beginning. Remember, Edom is descendant from one of Lot's children, uh, is from his illegitimate relationship, his incestuous relationship with his daughters. Uh, we have the two nations that came out of that, and the daughters got him drunk, slept with him so that they could have children because they were stuck up in the mountains and figured we're never going to get out of here while our father lives. So that means when he dies, we'll be too old to, to get a man, so we're going, to have, we're going to have children by our father. And out of that came Edom. When the children of Israel came up out of Israel, uh, out, of, out of Israel, out of Egypt, <laughs> And they refused to go in, and after their 40 years of wandering, they came to Edom, and they said, would you please let us go through your land? We will pay, we will pay you a toll to go through the road. We'll stay on the road. We'll pay for, your, pay for any water that we drink. We'll pay for, pay for all our stuff. And Edom told them no. And God said, you don't get to attack them. You have to go around them. So they had to go way out west and come, uh, way out east and come back around them. And then they got to Ammon, and Ammon told them the same thing, but God said, go take them out. Uh, so we see over and over, they have been protected. Why are they protected? Because they're indirectly descendants of Adam, uh, of uh, Abraham, because Lot is his nephew. So they are related to Abraham. They are considered family as far as they're concerned. And God said, no, you're not gonna destroy your own family. But later on he says, they're due for judgment. They have, been, they have been so evil for so long, we're going to bring judgment. And God has a limit on his patience. There comes a time when God says, okay, I have given you all the patience I'm going to give you. 
you now face, you face the piper, pay the music, whatever term you want to use. Uh, and they go, it is now time to uh, have the consequences. And with his children, he gives us consequences. He may not be quite as bad as total destruction, but he gives us consequences. He tries to make sure that we understand that when we do wrong, there's a consequence. And if we continue to do wrong, as a Christian, if we continue to do wrong and will not respond to his discipline, I truly believe, and most pastors do, that there comes a time when he says, okay, you will not change, you will not, you're being a bad testimony for, for me, you are my child, I'm taking you home. And he takes, takes them home. What rewards they have are, are negligible, if they have any at all, and they get to heaven because they are his child. But again, I'd be very careful saying they're his child, his child, but God will take them home if they're going to be a bad witness. Uh, if you can continue to sin without any kind of punishment, you're probably not one of God's children. If you can sin without conviction, you're probably not one of his children. But to be caught up in a sin and not be able to be victorious, and you know you're God's child, and you know you're being convicted of it, there is that possibility. He just says, okay, time to come home. I'm not going to have you ruin ruin the testimony or suffer endlessly. How, where is that point that God does that? I have no idea. I, knew, I know some people who claim to be Christians and they died pretty early because they kept committing the same sin over and over and over and over again. Was it because of their lack of, of the trust, trusting God and growing in God? Probably. Were they actually saved? I'm not going to go there on that one. Uh, because the whole idea, and one of the things that we get really accused of when we talk about eternal salvation, because God calls it eternal, that you can't lose your salvation, is we'll get accused of, well, that means that anybody can get saved and just do, you know, live like the devil. Theoretically, yes, but if you're living that way and you are saved, you're going to be under so much conviction that you can't, you know, it's not worth it. Okay? If you can, if you can sin without conviction you probably never were one of his no matter what you say. And when I talk to people, you know, they go, well, I tried God. Well, there's no trying God. You either, you either commit yourself to him or you don't. And unfortunately, for, for years, there was this idea, well, try God. Yeah. No, it's you commit yourself to God because going, joining God's side is not an easy life. Satan does not like people switching sides in the middle of the war. He has a whole army that's given to him at birth, and he doesn't like it when all of a sudden you get saved and you, ju you go join the other side and work against him. If they are saved, they're going to have lots of consequences, and they will probably be taken home early. It would be very hard to prove that they're saved if, it's, if that's the case. It would be very hard to say this person was saved when their lifestyle never showed, showed that they were saved. It is possible. I, I believe it's impossible because all to be saved is to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And it has to be more than just spoken words. It has to be really believed and meant. You have to put your trust. If somebody is living in a godless lifestyle, I would be hard-pressed to say that they are saved. I'm not their judge. God is ultimately their judge. I will treat them as if they're not saved. I will witness to them and encourage them to, to make, turn their life you know, completely over to God. And because I'm not their judge. There, there's an old saying, and I've said it many times, when we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised at who's there and who's not, and who's not there. Because we're going to look and say, well, that person's there? You know, 
that person who was, who was a drunk all the time and did all these, these bad things? And God said, yeah, he, he did accept me as his Lord and Savior. Will he have many rewards? No. Uh, he'll be the, the, the smallest, smallest uh, room in the mansion and, and no rewards. And there will be other people we look at and say, wow, that person was in church every week. They read their Bible. They would even pray out loud in church. And they, they were nice to people. They did nice things, but they never turned their life over to God. And they'll end up in hell. Hell will be full of people that looked like good people on this world. Well, I'm just amazed. I'm thinking, when we get up there, it's going to be so huge. How would we find it? You probably... Because it's, I mean, it's like New York, California, just saying. Well, halfway anyway. We get there. That is, that is a distinct possibility. Uh, time and space may not matter to us as much because we will have a different reality. Uh, we talk about this place coming down. It's 15,000 uh, 15, miles square. That's a big city. You know, we're talking about the East Coast all the way to the Mississippi or the Mississippi all the way to the West Coast. That's a pretty big city. Will and a really tall city because it's also that same in height. So will it be? How will we travel? Can we travel? Will we be able to travel more by thought? Will we have bodies that can just move and, and get around? Philip was told to go talk to the Ethiopian in the wilderness, and he talked to the Ethiopian. Ethiopian. He baptized him, and it said he was translated. He just went from the Ethiopian back to back to where he started. God will be able to move us how he wants. So he may give us the ability to, to move. There may be greater technology. Who knows how God's going to do it? But I don't think time and space is going to be that big a deal. Number one, there won't be time. But distance, I don't think, will be that big a deal to us either. Uh, we'll just think, well, I want to talk to so-and-so. Yeah. Oh, there we are. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know how God will do it. It doesn't matter to me. I don't think uh, space is going to be a big deal to us when we're in heaven. Yeah, and that's speculation. I don't know that for sure, but I kind of, I kind of have no problem believing it. Why did he build, build and create these really beautiful planets out there, just so men in the 20th century would be able to go, 21st century would be able to discover them and see how beautiful God's work is out in the past? That's quite possible. Maybe that's all he did it for. You know, the early, the early men don't know anything about it. You 21st century men, you think, you think, you think you're so smart. What about all these beautiful things out here? And some of those planets, you know, from what we see on the telescopes, are very pretty. And so why has God created all that? Just so we could discover it? It's possible. When we think about the animals and life that are in the deepest part of the sea that nobody has ever seen until recently, and they're gorgeous, and God has put beautiful patterns on things that can only be seen in ultraviolet light or or other different types of light that only recently have we been able to, that have we as humans been able to see? Why would God put a pattern on a white flower that we can't see? You know, maybe the animals can see it, I don't know, but he's put patterns on things, he's, he's decorated things. Maybe he's kind of showing what kind of what's going to be up in heaven. I think God's a show off in some ways, he wants yeah, to show off to he wants to show off to us and say, you think you guys can do great things? Let me just, let me just show you what I can do. And uh, it's pretty amazing when you, when you start seeing some of these flowers in, in an ultraviolet light or a UV light, and, and you see these patterns all of a sudden pop up. And you go, wow, God, what wonderful things you did. All right, verse 7. This is where I got tied up last night when I was doing my studies. 
And I knew I'd studied this before, so I wanted to find all these answers. And the unicorn shall come down with them, and the bullocks in, with the bulls, and their land shall be soaked with the blood, and their dust made fat with fatness. And a lot of people will make fun of the Bible, especially the King James, because they talk about unicorns nine times in the Old Testament. The large majority of them are in the book of Job. Unicorns in the ancient times were not the what we describe, what we think of in our day and age, a horse with a long horn. That was not what they, what they referred to as unicorns. What they were talking about, as far as we can see, have become extinct. Uh, we have a statement by Marco Polo, the explorer that discovered China. And he talked about, he said, they have wild elephants and plenty of unicorns, which are scarcely smaller than the elephants. They have the hair of a buffalo, the feet of an elephant. They have a single large black horn in the middle of their forehead, and they are ugly brutes to look at. They are not at all such as we describe them when we relate to that they let themselves be captured by virgins. <laughs> okay. So they're not a very pretty thing to look at. And they're just a, just a little thing, just, a, just the size of an elephant. <laughs> Pliny, he was one of the great ancient historians. His descriptions of it is a fierce animal called a monoceros, or a one horn, which has the head of a stag, the feet of an elephant, the tail of a board, while the rest of it of the body is like that of a horse. It makes a deep, lowing sound a single black horn which projects from the middle of its forehead 36 inches in length. But it does sound kind of like a rhinoceros in some of them. In some cases it sounds a little bit, now rhinoceri don't have hair. hair, or they have very little hair because they are a mammal, they do have hair, but they don't have much hair. And that's what they're saying, they have the great big feet of, you know, and so in portions it does sound like a rhinoceros. If it is a rhinoceros, it is a woolly rhinoceros. <laughs> That's quite possible, you know. Really, yeah. They're not. They're not the prettiest animal. They're not the pretty, but they're not the size of an elephant. <laughs> so this could be a extinct woolly rhinoceros. Now Julius Caesar writes about them. He says there are, there's a third kind consisting of these animals, which we call uri. They are a little below the size an elephant in size, in their appearance and and shape of a bull, their strength and speed are extraordinary. They spare neither man nor wild beast when they see them. The Germans take great pains to dig pits for them to kill them. The young men uh, are hardened themselves with much exercise and practice themselves in this kind of hunting. And those that have slain the greatest number of these, having produced the horns in public to serve as evidence <laughs> Uh, are re receive great praise, but not even the young, when uh, not even the very young, when taken young, can be rendered by man to be tamed. So these are something that cannot be tamed, is what they've said. The size and shape and appearance of their horns differ very much from the horns of our own oxen. So we have a creature that was called a unicorn, and they said it's untamable and it was, didn't show any mercy. And that's why we're not really talking about rhinoceros. Rhinoceros tend to be not fully tamed, but they can control, they can control them. 
Uh, a rhinoceros the size of an elephant might be another story altogether. But all through the ancient times, they talked about things they called unicorns. Whether they were very large, woolly rhinoceros, that's possible. So I want to be able to, when we see this word unicorn, there is historical references to unicorns that aren't what we consider them. But you know, you think about dragons, the legends of dragons have come along to change the way that we look at dragons. Uh, dragons were big monstrous beasts. And I believe, I truly believe that they were dinosaurs and we're gonna get into this dragons here. Because if you had a great big dinosaur in your field eat, tearing apart your field, you would be going to the government and say, I get, get rid of this dragon, he's destroying my place. Uh, could they have breathed fire? Bible talks about that, some of them that it can breathe fire. Many of them had cavities in their head that could have been used as some kind of chamber. Uh, pterodactyls have a huge cavity in their, in their skull and through that horn, and it was projected that they would make a thunderous sound. Now we talk, to, we talk about the American Indians. They talked about thunderbirds and the pictures of them that aren't stylized with the, tri with the triangles with something in the center look a lot like pterodactyls. They discount them because the Indians couldn't have drawn pterodactyls because pterodactyls lived hundreds of millions of years ago before humans. But everything that they tell us about them and they show us is a very clear picture that they saw pterodactyls. And they called them thunderbirds, which is exactly what scientists theorized that that big hollow spot in their head would have been a resonance chamber that would have made a thunderous noise. So it's kind of funny that we get all these legends about things that cannot happen so they're ridden off by our scientists because they want to believe that all these things died out long ago. We have all the ancient sailing ships that, that wrote about sea serpents, large monstrous sea serpents that would you know, attack their ships. We don't see sea serpents anywhere. Does that mean they don't exist? Well, we make so much stinking noise when we're out in the water, we probably would scare them a million miles away from us. They know it's not food, so we would never know that they were there in the first place. Uh, we have all the different stories of these different lakes, landlocked lakes that, that have some, something in them. I'm gonna say there's something in it because Loch Ness has so many stories, there's something in there. Lake Champagne has something in it. Most of the descriptions make them sound like plesiosauruses, long necks and, and fins when they are seen. Are they still there? They might be gone by now, but they were something there. And when we write off all these things, we're really harming ourselves. And people will mention that, well, dinosaur isn't in the Bible. Well, of course it's not in the Bible. It only came into existence in the 18, the word only came into existence in 1800s. So if we're reading a book from the 1600s, we're definitely not going to read the word dinosaur in it. But dragons appear all through the scriptures, and I really do believe that they're talking about dinosaurs. And are there some fire-breathing dinosaurs? I'm not going to rule that out. Uh, we don't know anything about them. And we discount all, you know, many of the stories that talk about fire-breathing dinosaur uh, dragons are, ah, that was just mythology. Just mythology. Uh, what also happened on that? I don't know. You know, usually when they talk about dragons, they have, they, they're called serpents, they're called, they're, they have this idea that they can speak. We have the serpent in the garden that was on four legs that could speak. I believe it was some form of dinosaur or we would call dragon in our day. You know, who knows what it's all about, but we look at these things and we just write them off because 
you know, well, we know, we know these things are, are fairy tale. Now, unicorns have great descriptions of them, and they all called them uni unicorns. Uni meaning one horn. So any, any animal that has one horn could, it, could be a unicorn. Huh? But according to the according to the pictures, they're ugly, they're mean, and they're fast. Caesar said his army gave them wide berth. He did not, you know, and, and it, he goes, if we if we saw it before it saw us, we we gave it, and they and because it was so vicious, obviously they tried to capture some of the young and try to tame them, and they'd go, they're untamable. And that kind of goes with what Job says about Leviathan. He says Leviathan is untamable. Um, and that was some form of sea serpent that could breathe fire and, and some kind of dragon in the, in the water that breathed fire. And he says it didn't fear anything. And if you have a thick enough skin, you know, like many of the dragon, story, dragon stories and, and dinosaur stories tell us, you wouldn't be afraid. You, you'd have to really get hit hard to, to have any damage. And, and there were, we're, we see this. So when we read this unicorn, and I remembered vaguely having done this study sometime in the past, so I had to go back and find all my, make new notes for the <laughs> idea of the unicorn, because Job talks about it a lot, and that's probably where I studied it the first time. But when we read these things, we need to look back and say, what did the old time records record of these things? Not what have we changed them to, and the false, false things that we've changed them to. We want to go back and say, what was it? And uh, as far as dragons go, we've got pictures of dragons all over the world. And when you look at the pictures of dragons, you see dinosaurs, basically. Many of them look like triceratops and those type of things. They had the big, ugly heads with multiple horns. They, they had the sleek bodies of, of some of the other creatures. And as I said, you know, if you have a dragon in, if you had a dinosaur in your land, you'd want the government to get rid of it. And Wales has all kinds of dragon legends. England has all kinds of dragons legends. India. We want to be careful when we look at these things. The Bible is telling us the truth. The Hebrew word for it is tannin, and it's translated dragon uh, in, in each of the places that it's, that it's translated. Uh, so we want to be able to look at this, and it says, the dragon shall come down with them, the bullocks with, and the bulls, and they shall be soaked with the blood. Their dust shall be and their dust made fat with the fatness. In other words, even these big vicious animals will not be able to help eat them. And when they were destroyed, there may have been these very creatures in their army or around their army. Because this is the area that Marco Polo was talking about. This area between the Middle, the Middle East and India is where he talked about the unicorns. So these things are, are been around for a little while, and maybe they've died out, probably died out, or gotten smaller, or whatever. Uh, big animals have trouble getting enough food, and we see this. And you know, people go, "Well, why did they become extinct?" I don't know. Why did the dodo become extinct? Why do we lose thousands of thousands of species every day? They just can't handle the environment as as it changes. They can't make, and they end up having problems. Sometimes man causes their problems. <laughs> Which again, dragons would have, you know, dragons would have had a big problem. Man would have had a big problem with this big creature rampaging through their villages, and they would have killed every dragon they possibly could. And back in those days, they weren't, they weren't going to care that they made it extinct. You know, today, you know, it's kind of an amazing thing. They talk about all these things going extinct, and if you go to any zoo or anything, they have this big. Almost every zoo has this, you know, you know, flashing thing: species that are becoming extinct. 
and it keeps moving at a high speed. And then they'll go, well, why did the dragons, why did, why did dinosaurs become extinct? We don't know. Things become extinct all the time. And so we want to just keep this in mind. Whatever these creatures were, we don't seem to have them anymore. Uh, they, they would be in a zoo somewhere if we had something the size of an elephant with one horn <laughs> with a lot of hair, it would be in a zoo somewhere. Corns, gazelle, I think, is what they use because that is the term. Ter- well, they saw this gazelle from the side and it looked like it only had one long horn. Well, I don't know of a uh, gazelle that's the size of an elephant or that has feet the size of an elephant or has woolly, woolly hair like a boar or, or, or an ox. I don't think that was the right animal. <laughs> So, but it is one of these things that we look at and say, God, what is, it you're, what is it that you have out there? I think it would be kind of fun to go back in time and see these things and see what, what was actually being talked about. Uh, it says in verse 8, for, this, for it is the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of his recompense for the controversy of Zion. For the streams thereof shall be turned into pitch and the dust thereof into brimstone and the land thereof shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched day or night. The smoke thereof shall go up forever for generation to generation. It shall be waste. None shall pass through it forever. So here is God's judgment upon Edom. And this is vicious. It says, for this is the day of the Lord's vengeance, his anger. And it says, the year of recompense, or he paying the reward, giving them their retribution. He goes, they're going to get what they've been asking for. And for the controversy of Zion, and this word for controversy literally is a legal case, a case going to court. And so he's saying, my people have come to me, they want justice, and my judgment is, they get it. And God answers prayers sometimes. That's why David's vindictive prayers you know, for, for judgment on people, God oftentimes answered his prayers. I don't want to pray that way. I want to see them go to, go to heaven. I'm not looking to see them spend their time in hell. But, you know, there are times probably when it's God, it's time, to, it's time for you to move and, and give freedom. I'm not going to tell him exactly how to do it because I've, I've told you I've been scared when I've seen him move against different people for their sin because he comes harsh. People die when God moves. And we see this over and over again. When God moved on Germany for its, for its brutal attacks on the Jewish people, many Germans suffered because of that, that activity. Many people in other lands have suffered for their attack on Israel. Uh, and the book of Esther is all about Mordecai trying to, uh, not Mordecai, uh, yeah, the other guy, Haman. Haman trying to destroy the, the Jewish people. And he died, his family died. And if you read the story closely, many of the people of the Babylonian Empire died when they tried to follow through with his, his order, original order to go kill the Jews. And, and then you had Mordecai's order that said, you can def- Jews, you can defend yourselves. And then they sent another one out saying, okay, now you guys can go kill more people because they tried to kill you. Lots of people died because they tried to kill the Jewish people. God stands up for his people. And we're starting to have a lot of kickback within, this, within Christianity even that you're not supposed to support the Jews. Well, my Bible has never told me not to support Israel. My Bible has never told me that God has pulled back his promise to Abraham 
that his people will be blessed. He's never told us anywhere in here that it, the church has replaced Israel. Anybody who talks about not supporting the Jewish people will then go into replacement theology that says the church is in place of the Jewish people. I don't want to be in place of the Jewish people because we have a, the Jews have a really hard time for seven years. We're not going to be here because we haven't replaced Israel. God has just put Israel on the back burner for, for a couple millennia. The church has been active and preaching the gospel and changing the world. And God has a plan for Israel to be used in the end time. And Israel will be the population of the millennial kingdom primarily. There will be a handful of people that make it through without taking the mark of the beast. But if you don't have a reason not to take the mark of the beast, you're going to take the mark of the beast. Because it's going to make all kinds of logical sense. You can't buy, you can't sell, you can't get a job, you can't survive without the mark of the beast. And people go, well, there'll just be a barter situation. Not during that period there won't be because you have to get your stuff to be able to barter in the first place. And when God's raining destruction upon the world, you're not going to grow stuff to be able to barter. You're not going to have time to make things. It's like you see the war movies where people go, everywhere I move, my, 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 my uh, home gets bombarded and I get moved out by the, by the new battle. That's what the, the, the tribulation period is going to be like. It'll be a war zone everywhere you go. The only people that will have any weapons will be Satan and, Satan and his, his ruling government. And you know, this, is, this is the problem that we see when people keep talking about, well, we've got to disarm. If we were all disarmed, there wouldn't be any problems. Man is still sinful. Uh, England tried to take guns away from people, and what ended up happening, they have all kinds of knife and club and sword violence now. So they're going to come down, well, taking their guns didn't do it. Now we'll take away their clubs and their swords and their, and their knives. Uh, they'll find something else to, to be violent with because that's the nature of people. And eventually the governments will say, well, we're going to try this. We're gonna, okay, all governments give one, gov you know, one head leader all the rights to be able to defend you. Then we'll really be in trouble. Because if we disobey that leader, you're in, you're in trouble. And that is the way the dictators start. They take all the guns away from people. Uh, when Hitler came to power, one of the first things he did, or not one of the first things, but just before he declared himself the Fuhrer, he made guns illegal. But before that, he had them register their guns. And then in one night, the SS and brown shirts went through and confiscated all the guns of, of Germany because they knew where every gun was. And they confiscated them all in one night. They just went busted in the doors on people's houses and took everything. And we wonder, is it really a good idea to register all our guns? Not that I have any guns or anything, but I still don't like the idea of saying, okay, only the government can have guns. Our founding fathers didn't like the idea of the government only having guns because they wanted people to defend themselves against the government if necessary. Because they understood that the government is made up of people and the people are evil. And if you give enough power to people, they get very evil and force their way on other people. And we see all of that happening at a worldwide scale, which is why I think we're close to the end times, because there's no place you can go that's not being, not forced to follow these things. And the UN is trying to grab more and more power and control more and more things. And we can't really control them. Uh, if the United States puts too much pressure on them, they'll just move the UN to some place that's not going to try to put too much pressure on them. Uh, they want to tax the world because they're tired of the U.S. being able to tell them no and hold, withhold funds. So they want to have a tax so that they can be the one world government. 
That's the goal. And it's being taught in school that our, the nations are the problem. We need one government to control everything because if we had one government, there wouldn't be war. We wouldn't have any problems because we would have the utopia that we're looking for. And people are going to hand over the, their rights, their, their, their authority to one world government eventually. God told us this was going to happen. It will happen. Will it happen real soon? Groundwork's laid. The groundwork is laid for it. So we have trials. We have troubles. It says God's vengeance is coming. It says, very interestingly here in verse 9, And the streams thereof shall be turned into pitch, and the dust thereof into brimstone, and the land thereof shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched neither day nor night. The smoke thereof shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall be lay waste. None shall pass through it forever. So we see here a picture, and most of the commentaries that I looked at said this is a picture very much like Sodom and Gomorrah. God's judgment. The streams here really talk about the dry streams that become raging rivers. We call them washes in this area. When it rains, it pours. And they, it says they will run with pitch or tar. I don't know where you get that much tar to run, run a river of tar. <laughs> this is the judgment that he put upon Sodom and Gomorrah many, many hundreds of years before this, uh, this event. And then he brought it in, and, and that land is a wasteland. So you're right, part of it is kind of volcanic, but God can open up the volcanoes. Is it divine? Definitely. Uh, I'd never have a problem with God doing things in natural ways because it still happens when he says it's going to happen. I don't like it in one sense because people like to explain it away. You know, they'll go, well, you know, Moses crossed the Red Sea with the people because this great windstorm came blowing down from the, from the heavens and this, tropo, this event and this event. Okay, I'm wonderful, and so if you can picture a way that that can be done in nature, that's great, but it still happened when Moses needed it to happen for them to cross the, cross the Red Sea. I don't believe what they say. It's still, even if you can't explain it away, it still happened at the right moment for the crossing that needed to, to save them, and it covered the, covered the enemy up. I don't know how that great wind would have dried out all the mud at the bottom of the sea that fast for them to cross over on dry land in the middle after just being blown away, because if you've ever gone swimming in a lake you know, deep enough and gone down, there's a deep bit of mud at the bottom of, those, of that water. Uh, and I've always thought about that. When God dried up the Red Sea, it wasn't just the miracle of drying up the, you know, splitting the Red Sea. It was the miracle of drying all that mud so that three and a half million people could cross through quickly in one night across the, you know, across the Red Sea, and then he drowned the, the Egyptians in that sea. Move three and a half million people, it had to be wide. The excuses that people will give you, the scenarios will give you, don't answer half the problems when you look at when they try to make it a non-miracle non thing and they try to give natural reasons for it. You split that, that, that Red Sea and made walls, you know, even in, in the shallowest 50, 50 to 100 feet, you still have to dry the, dry the land. And so, and it said they went on dry land. And it says it shall not be quenched, and it shall be light, and it shall be a disaster. And this is a picture of the same type of Sodom and Gomorrah. God has finally said, Edom, I'm tired of what you're doing. And here it doesn't tell us exactly what they were doing, but we know they've been evil all along, <laughs> and that they've caused problems all along. They kept attacking Israel, and God has finally said, you're going to be judged, and he destroys their land and destroys it in such a way that it is still destroyed. 
this, uh, this is coming back because we actually see Edom's, where Edom was deserted to, in, our, in our day and age. It's a deserted, and one historian uh, talks about in that area, within three miles of the Dead Sea, which is all desolate, they can find at least 30 ruined cities. And some of them very beautiful with huge pillars and everything so that they were destroyed quickly. And so we have that whole issue that goes out there. When God, when God moves, he destroys. And uh, destroys quickly. And in verse 11, but the cormorant and the bittern shall possess it, the owl also and the raven shall dwell in it, and shall stretch out upon the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness, and they shall call the nobles thereof to the kingdom, but there shall be, there shall be, none shall be there, and all her princes shall be nothing. The thorn shall come in her palaces, nettles and brambles in the fortresses. Therefore it shall be an inhabitation of dragons and a court of owls. The wild beasts of the desert shall meet with the wild beast of the island. The satire shall cry with his fellows. The screech owl also shall rest there and find for herself a place of rest. There shall the great owl make her nest and lay and hatch and gather under the shadows and shall and there shall the vultures be gathered, everyone with her mate. So we see here a picture of a wilderness. He says, the cormorant, which is some kind of pelican-like bird, or a pelican in and of itself. It's an unclean bird. They talk about the cormorant having a big pouch underneath its, underneath its beak, which to me is, is a pelican, but maybe there's another creature that has the same, same feature. And the bittern are something of either hedgehog or porcupines. These are words that they're not absolutely sure what they mean. And he says, these shall live there, the raven, the owl shall live there. And he shall draw a line of confusion and of emptiness and, and void. And the line he's talking about is like the surveyors. Surveyors draw lines and, and map out your territory by, by making lines. And he says, you will call for their kings and their nobles, and they won't be there. You know, God's destruction of their, of their land was complete. And, you know, it's kind of scary when God moves, what can, be, what can happen. Sodom and Gomorrah was totally destroyed, that entire valley. And why did Lot decide to go to that valley? Because he looked and it was green and lush and plentiful. Most people believe it's in the southern part there where the wilderness of Zin is. And God destroyed it because of their sin. And... We see over and over, he says, the thorns will be in her palaces, nettles or thorns and brambles will be in their fortresses, and they shall be an inhabitation of dragons in the court of owls. So again, dragons would be our dinosaurs. And there shall wild beasts from the desert lie, meet with the, with the wild beast of the islands. Not sure where the islands, what the islands are talking about on this one, but from sea to, to mountains probably, he says that there will be, be there. The, the satire, now, this is another one of the people, places where people look and say the Bible talks about satires. The Bible talks, it has two places where the word satire is used. Of the Hebrew word that is used 57 times, there's only two places where it's translated satires. Every single other place, it refers to a he-goat or a baby goat. Why in Isaiah in the two places do they make it to be satires? I don't know. I think it's a badly translated word. So that means a he goat. A he goat, a male goat. Wow. 
A satire in mythology is a half goat, half man that, play, that oh. plays pipes. Uh, that's not what he's talking about here. Like I say, the word in Hebrew is used 57 times and it is always translated as goat, he goat, or kid. Uh, why in the two places in, in Isaiah do they use the word satire? I don't know. It, I think because it's such destruction that they're trying to make it, you know, because this is a very apocalyptic type destruction, they're trying to whitewash it a little bit and say, well, obviously if it's that bad, then, then these other mythological creatures would be there. That's my only thing. I, I, I'd have to go back to 1612 and talk to the original, original translators. Why did you translate this one as, as satire in these two places? So if you want to change that to he goat or even just straight goat, you're safe to do it because 55 other times it's translated goat. Well, you have to know you have to know some of myth mythology, Greek mythology, and Roman mythology. Um, so again, we look at this thing and, and say it's sad sometimes when they translate things the way they do, because like I say, 55 other times it's translated goat. Why translate it as a mythical creature here? I don't I don't understand. And the, and I haven't researched that. Maybe satires have some other meaning far enough back, but. The only way I know of them is through mythology, Greek and Roman mythology, where they were a half goat, half man creature. And, and that's why people look at it. It's, it's, and there are some sad, bad things that are translated because people use it against Christians. Well, see, look at this. You're talking about dragons, unicorns, satires. You know, what, 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 what do you believe? What kind of mythologies are you believing in? And we want to be careful and make sure you do some research to find out what's being talked about. All right, the last two verses. Seek you out the book of the Lord and read, no one, no one of these shall fail, none shall want her mate, and her mouth it hath commanded, and his spirit hath gathered them. He shall cast the lot for them, and his hand has divided it unto them by line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation shall they dwell therein. And it says, seek out the book. And this word to seek is to seek earnestly. God has given us the, the Bible. In this case, he's saying, seek out the book. I've told you that this happened. So when you see it happen, go back to the Bible and know that I have said that it was going to happen. But we seek out the scriptures, and it gives us the answers to life. It, it will show us what we're doing because God breathed these words. And it is wonderful to know that if you really want to find out how to live, how to get by, seek God's word. You know, look at it, and he's saying, you know, all of these things are going to come to pass, when you see them come to back, go back to the Bible. And it's an amazing thing when people go out and they try to find things, and archaeologists use the Bible a lot to go find things. They go, where, where, where does the Bible say it is? And they start looking there. And lo and behold, they usually find what they're looking for right there. Uh, there is no other holy book out there that when it talks about places that you're going to find all their places uh, because they're a lot of times just books of fiction. They cannot be checked out and looked at. The Bible stands up to examination. That's why I love being in the Bible. You, know, you look at the Bible, you look at history, you look at true science, and it stands up. You look at psychology. 
Psychology has a lot of dumb things, but where they're right, it matches the Bible. You know, and you, they do, you get a study, and it's amazing to me sometimes, I'll listen to the news, and the government has spent, or such and such university has spent millions of dollars, and this is what they discovered, and I'm going, all you had to do was go to the Bible, it was right there to begin with. Uh, sometimes they spend millions of dollars and come up with something that's not biblical, and you go, well, that, that'll fall by the wayside in a short period of time, and sure enough, they do. The Bible holds up to examination. You don't ever have anybody convince you that you can't trust the Bible. It's where it touches on sciences, it's accurate. Where it touches on history, it's accurate. Where it talks, uh, uh, touches on archaeology, it's, it's accurate. Wherever it, it's not a science book, it's not a history book, it's not an archaeology book, but where it touches those areas, it is accurate. Where, where it touches in all those areas, it is true. And we can, we can be able to say, God is true. God is not afraid of being checked out. Every other religion is, is fearful of being checked out because their books don't hold up. They find contradictions in their books. In the Bible, we don't find contradictions. There are people that point out apparent contradictions. But just as we did in the very beginning of 2 Samuel, when the man came to David and said, you know, I killed Saul, and they go, see, there's a contradiction. No, that man said that he killed Saul, and David judged him for doing so. And, and you all had that right off the top of your head. There's no contradiction. You know, Saul died. He fell on a sword. This guy's, try, this guy's trying to get a, a reward. And there's various other places where if you just look at it, it's not a problem. We can stand on the word. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your love, your care, Lord. We we fearfully look at when you stand in judgment, Lord, and know that this world is facing judgment. And Lord, help us to share your gospel with others to keep them from having to share in that judgment that is to come. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.